We continue in our series, Heaven is Our Eternal Home. Last, we focused on the new Jerusalem and how that is a part of the new heavens and the new earth and the capital city of the new heavens and the new earth, in a sense. And if you remember, by way of review, we've now covered eternity past and the heavens. We looked at the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, which is really a precursor to a lot of what we've looked at in these last weeks, uh, the importance of and how the body and the soul is a part of the present as well as the future, specifically what happens to believers at death, uh, the characteristics of the present heaven, which we would refer to as the intermediate heaven, just in terms of uh, use of language, trying to describe what we're moving toward, And then the return and resurrection and judgment, followed by the millennial reign of Jesus, and then the new heavens and the new earth, and then last week, the new Jerusalem. And we focused in on how the new Jerusalem will radiate with beauty because of the way God has made it. Uh, The new Jerusalem will be arrayed with the glory of God that will permeate the whole thing. It will be absolutely holy because there will be an absence of sin. There will be nothing that is wrong or sinful in it. And then the new Jerusalem will be life-giving because the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. I want you to think just for a moment as we turn our attention, uh, in a sense, back to the new earth and think a little bit more about that. I want you to think for a moment about the most beautiful place or places that you have ever seen. It could be that you've seen them in person, or maybe you've just seen them on a documentary, or you've seen them online or something, but what is the most beautiful place you have ever seen with your own eyes? When looking at some of the things that make the list of the most beautiful places in the world, They include the Rainbow Mountains in China, uh, the Banff National Park in Canada, the Great Ocean Road in Australia, Machu Picchu in Peru, Japan in cherry blossom season, Bora Bora in French Polynesia, the Amalfi Coast in Italy, Fordland National Park in New Zealand, the Grand Canyon in the American West. Cape Town in South Africa, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, the Redwood Forest in California, and the Emerald Landscape in Ireland. Perhaps you've been to one or more of those places, but when we think about the beauty of what God has made, whether we've seen it in person and we've been blessed to do that, or we've seen it in pictures or in media, the beauty of God's creation provides a vivid testimony to our great creator, God. Uh, We're blessed to live in a state where the natural beauty is significant, and I think sometimes we overlook it because it is so magnificent, particularly in certain times and seasons of the year. And it's a reminder constantly to us of our great creator, God. Psalm 19 in verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of God of his hands. So we ask the question, what does the future hold for God's creation? 
what will be the relationship of the present earth with the new earth? What will our lives be like on the new earth? I remember just kind of as a broad uh, picture or presentation of that, we're thinking about there being a, a merging of sorts of the new heaven and the new earth with the new Jerusalem being the centerpiece of that and it being a recreated heavens and earth and what that's going to be like. Now, admittedly, before we get into this particular study, there is rather scant evidence in the scripture that gives specific description of what all these things are going to be. There's foreshadowings of it. There are descriptions of it. Sometimes it's difficult, even in the prophetic messages, to discern between what's happening in the millennium and then what's happening in eternity and how it's all going to play out. But we're going to look at some of those passages of Scripture tonight and try to put together an understanding of what this new earth is all about. So the scripture that I want to begin with tonight is in the Old Testament in Isaiah 65. And I'm going to read just two verses here as we get started. And here's what the scripture says. Isaiah 65, beginning of verse 17. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. Let me read that again. Verse 17. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past heavens will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. Now we read last in Revelation 21 and we looked at the new Jerusalem. But I back up again to Revelation 21 in verse 1 where the scripture says that I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So we have paired in those two passages of Scripture the prophetic word that God gave to Isaiah about what would come in the future, and then we have the vision of what God gave to John in the vision of the new heaven and the new earth. So I want us to think about some characteristics of the new earth and how those will look and what we should expect in the eternal state. The first characteristic is that the new earth will be restored. The new earth will be restored. Now you remember that we considered the passage of scripture from Second Peter uh, chapter 3. We focused in particularly on verses 10 to 13. But I back up just for a moment to what he has to say in 2 Peter 3 and verse 5. He says, By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up by fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter paints a helpful picture 
when he emphasizes the cleansing of the earth. And he reminds us that the earth was once destroyed, uh, being flooded with water in verse 6. And the second time it will be by fire. So we ask the question, was the earth annihilated by the flood in Noah's day? And the answer is no. And I think as in Noah's day, the earth was cleansed, but not utterly annihilated. So the earth is going to be made totally new and cleansed and purified. And exactly what all that means, we don't know, but it's going to be as by fire. And as I mentioned, we considered verses 10 through 13. And in those verses, he speaks about how the old and the corrupt uh, sinful elements of the earth will be melted away so that all disobedience and disease and destruction are going to dissolve. They're going to be no more. There's a passage that echoes this in Psalm 102 and verse 25 and 26, where the scripture says, long ago, you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them, but like a garment, and they will pass away. So interestingly, the new earth is described as being an earth. And the reason that is significant is because it is with the aspects of all that we would think about being an earth. And what I mean by that is that the new and the old will have continuity. The old will be cleansed by fire into a perfect earth where the redeemed will live forever for all of eternity. And then out of the ashes of that old earth will be made a new one. In that, the original purpose of God will be fulfilled. The original purpose of God when he created the earth was that he made it for people. He made it for the crown of his creation. And man was destined to rule as king of the earth in a perfect and a complete environment. There's an interesting connection between the Psalm 102 passage and Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 12. The interesting connection between Psalm 102 and Hebrews chapter 1 is that the word changed is used in the sense of the changing of clothes. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51, where the bodies of believers are changed. The believer retains their identity through receiving a glorified body. And I would say that the earth remains an earth, meaning that the earth retains its identity of what it is and what it was originally created to be, except now it's been renewed in something that is uh, totally pure and totally holy and totally without anything that would be offensive to God. And it remains something that God has made that is in fact still an earth. So the new earth will be restored. Characteristic number two, the new earth will be filled with the glory of God. Now, we've already touched on this, and we really should come back to it in every uh, aim of this study, because the treasure of eternity and the treasure of heaven itself will be the fact that we will be in the presence of God forever. He is the gift. 
in the idea that we could be in the presence of the one who created us, redeemed us, sustained us, and led us safely home is a blessing beyond the description of words. But the Bible is clear in Revelation 21 and verse 23 that we studied in the last session that the glory of God will illuminate the whole thing. Now think about it this way. The sun is so brilliant in its brightness that we cannot look into the sun for long without being blinded. God's glory will illuminate the earth in an enormous brilliance. And that enormous brilliance will surpass the light of the sun. The light will emanate from the new Jerusalem that has descended from heaven to the earth. And God's presence will pervade the city and emit constant light in abundance like we cannot even fathom. This is described in the Old Testament. Ezekiel describes the glory of God descending upon the earth in connection with the return of Jesus. Listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 39 and verse 21. I will display my glory among the nations, says the Lord, and all the nations will see the judgment I have executed and the hand that I have laid on them. Isaiah foretold the glory of God emanating from Jerusalem and attracting the Gentile nations to come to the light. We back up to Isaiah 60 where the scripture says in verse 1, Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. Then he says this in verse 19. The sun will no longer be your light by day and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your splendor. So in that day, the earth and the universe will be resplendent with God's illuminating brilliance. In the resplendent brilliance of God's glory that is going to shine on the whole thing is going to draw us to an eternal state of worship because we're going to be in awe of the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the kindness of God toward us, the blessing of being in his presence, the gift of being in heaven, and it's going to continually bring us back to a place of worship of him. Now, let me just say as a a footnote here, but also as a very important point, that I often say and have said in this series that one of the primary reasons for prophecy is for our purification. And I would say that one of the primary reasons for giving us insight into the scripture of what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like is so that we would anticipate what it's going to be like to be in the presence of God. And if we truly believe that God is holy in every regard, and if we believe that we've been redeemed in order to be conformed to the image of Jesus, and if we believe that we're going to someday live in a place that is perfect and without sin, then that makes us want to prepare for that so that we grow in our likeness of Christ, we grow in our understanding of the glory of God, And in that, our lives 
are transformed. Characteristic number three is that the new earth will be peaceful. It will be peaceful. Now, I can just pause here because that's just a nice thought. Without even unfolding it, that's a nice thought. Because we know that there's not peace in this world. Because there's sin, there's not peace. Because there's division among people, there's not peace. And there won't be until ultimately the king of peace returns, the one who will deliver us to the place of peace. Isaiah 32 and verse 16 says, then justice will inhabit the wilderness and righteousness will dwell in the orchard. So in the midst of this peace, the reason there's going to be peace is because justice and righteousness will dwell there. Now it's interesting that the concept of justice in the Old Testament is not vindictive. The concept of justice in the Old Testament is salvific, meaning that it is to draw us to what is right and true so that we can be rescued from what is wrong and untrue and unrighteous. And justice and righteousness are going to dwell in eternity, and the culmination is in Jesus Christ, through whom the justice of God is revealed and through whom the believer is made just. Now, this speaks into our present day as well, because there are people who are promoting peace and unity and all the things that go along with that, but many of the same people who are promoting peace and unity are also promoting things that are absolutely contrary to the nature of God, absolutely contrary to the Scripture, absolutely contrary to what is right and true. And if that's the case, there can never be peace in that regard unless it conforms to God who is our peace. Our world's not a peaceful world. We see it in the fallen creation itself, all of the disruption and the storms and the floods and the droughts. We see it in the political turmoil in our world and and the crime and the hatred of people toward other people. But the blessing of this is that we can look forward to a new earth where peace, tranquility, and safety will dwell. Remember what Isaiah 9 and verse 7 says in prophecy of the coming Savior, the Messiah, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So what is peace? It is harmony with God. It is wholeness of who we were created to be. It is completeness because of his righteousness. It is welfare, our well-being, that leads to tranquility. And this peace will embrace all of creation. We see that in some of the millennial language about the animals and and the peace that will dwell on the earth that is even still a, a foreshadowing of the final state of peace that will exist on the new earth. And then the next characteristic is that the new earth will be productive. It will be productive. Now, it will be productive because it will be without the effects 
of sin. Listen to the way Amos puts it in Amos uh, in, in his prophecy, he says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I've given them. And the Lord your God has spoken. The harvest will be so great that the one who begins to plant seeds for another harvest will be overtaken. As we read those opening verses in Isaiah 65, in that chapter and then the chapter to follow, in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, uh, he saw people building homes and inhabiting them. People planting vineyards. People eating fruit from the vineyards that they had planted. God's glory radiating throughout all of his creation so that the Gentile people will recognize the Lord as God and come to him and and worship him in the new Jerusalem, in that capital city. I want you to imagine just for a moment what our lives would be like when we worked without frustration, without stress, without difficulty, without unpredictability, without uh, interpersonal conflict, our work being productive to the very core. Tom Nelson in Work Matters uh, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work said, if our daily work done for the glory of God and the common good of the others in some way carries over to the new heavens and the new earth, then our present work itself is overflowing with immeasurable value and eternal significance. You know, one of the greatest tragedies of all in this life is that people live without purpose. That They live without an understanding of what God created them for. They live without an understanding of the significance of doing what they do just on the day-to-day as an act of worship. And when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of the idea that work is actually a good thing and that God created us, in fact, to be productive. And then there's coming a time when we can do things without all of these disruptions. And the possibility that there will be work for us to do is implied in these scriptures. And then the prophet Micah suggests that we won't just lay down our weapons, but we will pick up instruments of work. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. If there's work, it's not going to seem like it. And the quality of the workers and the quality of the workplace will be fully restored. And these work relationships will not be characterized by conflict, but by peace. They'll be characterized by fellowship and unity. There will be no meaningless life and there will be no meaningless work. And that's a beautiful thing that we could, in fact, live according to how God made us, be productive, do what he has given us to do, all for his glory, and there be significance to it. So I would challenge you, even in the meantime, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 
that you do everything, as the scripture says, as unto the Lord. And if you do everything that you do as unto the Lord, that will give you a purpose in the present life as you prepare for the next. Characteristic next is that the new earth will be like Eden. It will be like Eden. Now we're going now from the end to the beginning. And I want to transport you back just for a moment to what life must have been like in Eden in that original creation of God. When God created the world, it was beautiful. It was perfect in every way in that garden. Eden, in fact, was untouched and it was unstained by sin. It was beauty and it was functional. And God prepared our first home on the earth. Genesis 2 and verse 8 and 9 says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden uh, in east, and there he placed the man he had formed. In the same way that God paid attention to the details of Eden, he is paying attention to the details of what the new earth will be like. The sin of Adam and Eve, of course, brought devastating effects on the whole earth. But the good news is that God is not finished with the world. Christ, the last Adam, will restore the earth to its perfect pre-fallen condition. Now, I know that's hard to, hard to even fathom, at least it is for me, but that's what he's going to do. Isaiah 51 and verse 3 says, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness, watch this, like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. Now, we've already seen how the tree of life will be on the new earth, on both sides of the river, readily available to eat as a continual reminder that the inhabitants are qualified residents of the new Jerusalem and will live there forever. The river of life will flow, and it's a river that is as clear as crystal. It's coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Uh, Zechariah described the same river flowing from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea in Zechariah chapter 14. And I believe that these waters are going to be literal waters. But I think these literal waters are also symbolic of spiritual blessings. The literal waters that are symbolic of spiritual blessings speak to the power, the purity, and the fullness of life in the eternal city. A reminder that the river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And I already mentioned animals, but animals, I think, are going to be plentiful. Uh, they'll freely roam the earth uh, unhindered. As an extension of the millennium, uh, animals will be at peace with people. You can go back and read Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6 through 9, and it's speaking of the wolf uh, dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the goat and the calf and the young lion and so on. So there's this beautiful description that is speaking directly to the millennium, but we're not given any other thought except that would be the case in the new earth as well. And we ask the question, will the new earth start over as a new Eden or will it contain the cumulative knowledge and benefits of all that has progressed 
throughout human history. So in other words, will it be Eden in its ancient form or will the new earth be a vastly advanced earth that would reflect many of the advancements of human ingenuity that God has given to us? And the answer is, we, we don't know. The scripture doesn't say, but there's nothing to make us think that the new earth necessarily is going to be a, an absolute return to antiquity. It could be that God moves it fast forward and it's so futuristic and it's so advanced that we can't even conceive of it right now. It's like we're, we're riding a horse and, and it's going to be more like a Ferrari. I, I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's possible. Who gave people the ability to do what they do and to advance what they've advanced and to develop what they've developed? It all comes from God and his creative purposes and the, the knowledge and the ability that he's given to people. Uh, listen to what Cornelius Venema said in The Promise of the Future. He said, life in the new creation, and this is his opinion, but he says, life in the new creation will not be a repristination, I've never heard that word, I read that, of all things, but he says, uh, going back to the way things were at the beginning, rather, life in the new creation will be a restoration of all things involving the removal of every sinful impurity and the retaining of all that is holy and good. He goes on to say, were the new creation to exclude the diversity of the nations and the glory of the kings of the earth, it would be impoverished rather than enriched, historically regressive and reactionary rather than progressive. To express the point in the form of a question, is it likely that the music of Bach and Mozart, the painting of Rembrandt, the writing of Shakespeare, and the discoveries of science will be lost altogether upon life in the new creation. We don't know, but we can think that it might be including all of those things that God has given the ability to do that are in fact good, and it will exclude all of those things that are in fact sinful. Now, a few practical matters about life on the new earth. I've given you some framework here on these characteristics, but now let's think about a few practical matters about life on the new earth. And I give these under one heading because they're a little bit harder to expand on, and they're things that people are naturally interested in. We've already touched on this one, but I want to go back to it again. I believe we will retain the essence of who we are forever, meaning that who you are now, having been created in the image of God, as uniquely you, with distinctives of who you are as uniquely you, will in fact be present as the same person, the essence of who you are for all of eternity, except it's going to be without sin, it's going to be without imperfection, it's going to be without the brokenness that often comes along with physical life, especially in this world. And we see some evidence of this, for example, in the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah were recognized for who they were in the presence of Jesus, so that in our glorified bodies we will be who God created us to be. But here's the good news for you. You're going to be at your very best. You're not going to be at your worst. You're not going to be at your aged or diseased or infirm or limited or any of that stuff. You're going to be the very best version of who God created you to be. 
and you will be glorified in his presence. Now, the question is sometimes asked, just out of curiosity with this particular issue, will everyone seem to be around the same age in perfection, having been glorified? I think that's quite likely. And I think that will be true ranging from infants and children, for example, who have gone on to be with the Lord, as well as the elderly and the infirm who uh, struggle with just the realities of aging and the, the advancement of life and just all that we all deal with if we live here any time at all. And I think what we're going to exist like in our glorified bodies is the very best um, uh, version of who we could possibly be glorified by God in his presence for eternity. And I think that's good news. Now, we'll see when we get there. I believe also, uh, the second part of this is I believe, as I've already mentioned, that there will be work on the new earth. Now, if in part the new earth will be about a return to Eden, at least in a sense, then work was a part of the original Eden. Work was not a part of the curse. Now, everybody uh, talks like it is. Oh, thank God it's Friday. You know, oh God, it's Monday. You know, that woe is me attitude everybody has about work. Um, And I'm sorry for you if you've got to do something that makes you feel like that when you go to work. Um, But at any rate, it wasn't a part of the original curse. That God, God made it as something that was good. And the scripture says in Revelation 22 and verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. So serving God is in fact work. Servants are people who carry out tasks actively. And part of our work will be to rule and to reign with Christ. Now there's some mystery to this, admittedly. What are the cities going to look like? What is the expanse of the new earth going to be like? What all is going to be included in it? And how does it exactly fit with the new Jerusalem and everything that goes along with that? I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's far broader than what most of us have been taught to believe or what most of us have thought about eternity being like. And 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12 says, if we endure, we will also reign with Christ. We will be actively ruling and administrating in heaven and on the new earth and to rule and to reign with him, there's got to be something to rule and to reign. And I think that's going to involve part of our work and part of what will be rewarded and part of what be, will be entrusted to us um, in the Lord's presence. And then I believe that there will be rest on the new earth. For those of you who like to rest and are blessed by rest, um, then you'll be pleased with this. But listen to what Revelation 14 and verse 13 says. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Now, I don't know about you, but this may be one of the most blessed parts of this particular study to me, because it seems like we're constantly never quite reaching that state of rest, because there's always more to do. And there's always tension and there's, there's stress and there are problems and all, everything that goes along with life in a sin-fallen world. But there's rest 
coming. And it's going to be a complete rest. Just as God rested after he created all that he made, there's going to be rest on the new earth. And it will be a healthy rest because it will be with God for eternity. And then I believe we will have places to live. We've also touched on this, but Jesus said in John 14 and verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions and many dwelling places, literally. I go and prepare a place for you. D.A. Carson said, the simplest explanation is best. My Father's house refers to heaven, and in heaven are many rooms, many dwelling places, And he says, the point is not the lavishness of each, but the fact that ample provision has been made such that there is more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him in his father's home. You won't have to worry about a place to dwell because Jesus is preparing it for us. And then I believe there will be eternal relationships in Christ. This is the last practical matter that I want to touch on. I believe there will be eternal relationships in Christ. This may be one of the most uh, interesting points for many people because they want to know how we're going to relate to each other when we get there. How are generations of families that have come and gone going to relate to each other? How are people that have lived in family units on this earth going to relate to each other? You remember when Jesus um, was told by someone that his mother and his brothers were waiting to see him. And he said in Luke chapter 8, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. You see, in eternity, in one regard, we're going to be one big family. And all family members in that one big family will be friends. And all friends are going to be family members. And to state it as plainly as I can without a tremendous amount of elaboration on it in the scripture, I believe that the relationships we have had on this earth will still be known to us. In that just as we retain the essence of who we are in eternity, the connections and the relationships that we have had on this earth will still be known to us in heaven in perfection However, earthly family and marriage specifically are a shadow, a copy, an echo of the true and ultimate marriage. Because our ultimate relationship with God is the relationship of perfection. Christ is spoken of as the bridegroom, the church as the bride. We spiritually relate with our Father, with our Savior in the Spirit. And as Drake uh, Whitchurch said in Waking from Earth and Seeking Heaven, he said once that ultimate marriage begins, speaking of our relationship with Christ at the Lamb's wedding feast, all the human marriages that pointed to it will have served their noble purpose and will be assimilated into one great marriage that they foreshadowed. The purpose of marriage, he says, is not to replace heaven, but instead to prepare us for it. Jesus had a little something to say about this in Matthew 22 and verse 30, where he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. 
Now, before we go any further down that road, we will not be angels. It is one of the most common theological errors I see in anything that someone's gotten their wings and they've gone to heaven to be an angel of God. It's wrong. It's always been wrong and it'll always be wrong. People are created in the image of God to serve God, to know God, to live with God forever through Christ. Angels are spiritual beings that are created to serve God, to do what he wants them to do around the throne and in the world. And human beings and angels, although angels seem to have been given human-like presentation characteristics in some of the manifestations on earth, angels are not people. They have never been people. People are not angels. They have never been angels, and the two will never cross. We will be created in the image of God for eternity, and angels will be angels. Now, that's my whole theological lesson on that, um, but it's something I always want to come back to because there's, there's with good intentions, confusion about that. People don't mean any harm by it when they say it, and they're still wrong. Um, so what about these earthly relationships? Well, I believe that God is going to do in the eternal state what he originally intended to do in um, his creation. People were created to dwell on the earth. That's where we're going to dwell in heaven. And that suggests an eternity in which we will relate to God perfectly. We'll relate to one another perfectly. It's going to be at a higher and different level than what we think about from a human perspective right now. That doesn't mean that our family relationships will be dissolved and we won't know them as we did, but many of the activities that we undertook in this life, will we will have moved beyond to a different state of being glorified in the presence of God, if that makes sense. And I think that's what's going to inform our relationships. Now, I also happen to think that we will have perfect knowledge uh, in heaven, in, in, not that we're going to know everything, but I believe that when I see the Apostle Paul, for example, I think I'm going to know that's Paul. Or when I see uh, somebody that I never knew, that was never famous, that was never in the scripture, but maybe a believer that served in the middle of Africa somewhere, I think I'm going to have knowledge of who they are. And I have nothing to base that on other than the knowledge that uh, we see at the Transfiguration, for example. Because the disciples that were there, they were not contemporaries of, of Moses and Elijah um, at all. And yet they recognized them for who they were. So perhaps God will give us that same ability with people when we get there. I don't know. Again, we'll find out uh, when we get there. So in conclusion, there's a lot we don't know, but there's much we do know. And the much that we do know should broaden our vision of much of what we've been taught at times that is very narrow about our concept of heaven. And it should open up our thinking with anticipation of what it's going to be like. Because I promise you, it's going to be way better than what I've even begun to describe it as tonight or in the study. So we're going to continue on from the new earth. And um, we're going to look at some other aspects of this uh, and uh, go a little bit longer in the study. Uh, but that's going to wrap up our time tonight. And let's pray uh, together.